Last week we talked about, I'm going to move this. We talked about prayer last week and that we should passionately pray for the requests that God lays on our hearts. But today we focus on praying as it relates to sin in the life of believers and unbelievers. And while our passage today is only two verses, it's actually a very heavy passage to discuss. So since we're talking about sin today, I think it's only helpful that we define what sin is. So here's the definition I want you to keep in mind as we work our way through this passage today. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. I'll say it again. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So with that definition in place, let's talk about some of the foundational issues surrounding the definition of sin. Number one, sin is a specific evil and it's related to the law of God. In other words, sin is not simply a deficiency in our personality or a weakness in our life. It is an evil violation against the law of God. Romans 1.21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. R.C. Sproul was known for saying this while he was alive, You are not a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you're a sinner. There's a difference there. The origin of sin is who we are as human beings. So number one, sin is a specific evil. It's related to the law of God. But number two, it is a lack of conformity to the law of God. John teaches this in this very epistle. In 1 John 3 verse 4, he says sin is lawlessness. And then number three, sin includes both guilt and pollution. When we talk about sin causing us to be guilty, that is in relation to the justice of God. When we talk about sin polluting us, that is in relation to the holiness of God. So in the cultural moment in which we live, sin is normally not defined according to the Bible, but it's often celebrated and maybe even recognized as a badge of individual expression and achievement. And I hope that as we have had times of corporate prayer, specifically focusing on confessing our sin before the Lord, that you have heard all of the various ways that we as Christians can be guilty of sin. Because as evangelicals, we have been very quick to point out sins like fornication and homosexuality and adultery and murder, oftentimes at the expense of sins like gluttony and pride and anger, and divisiveness, and greed, and jealousy, and ingratitude, and impatience, unwholesome talk, lust, slander, malice, envy, and any other sins that I neglected, neglected to mention. So a proper understanding of the gospel is impossible without a proper understanding of sin. Like we say all the time, in our worship services. We don't need Jesus 
to make us better husbands, better fathers, better neighbors, better friends. There are lots of avenues that you can pursue to become better at those things. The reason you need Jesus is because he is the only one who can save you from your sin. So as we work our way through this passage today, we're going to learn three things. Number one, sin affects the body. Number two, God offers life. And then number three, sin leads to death. Sin affects the body. God offers life. Sin leads to death. Number one, sin affects the body. Now, I use the term body here as a reference to the body of Christ. But sin actually does affect our physical bodies as well. In fact, the reason we die is because of sin. But in the first part of verse 16, John is referring to a situation in which a Christian sees his brother committing a sin. John may use the word anyone, but the reference is to be understood as a Christian observing or hearing that another Christian is in sin. And John gives specific instructions about what to do when that happens. John's instruction is to pray for that individual. Praying is vitally important because it initiates the power source that the individual believer will need in order to combat or resist sin in their life. But praying is also important for the one who is about to approach, approach that brother or sister in Christ because it keeps them humble and helps them to avoid a spirit of judgmentalism or arrogance toward that believer who is struggling in sin. So, for example, if I know of a brother or sister engaged in an adulterous relationship or someone viewing pornographic material regularly or eating cheeseburgers and fries for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. That would be gluttony, right? We want to try to encompass all the sins, not just talk about the big sins. So, any other sin that I didn't mention that would go unconfessed and unrepentant, the reason, oftentimes, that we as brothers and sisters in Christ stop short of approaching that brother or sister is because we're afraid that to do so would mean that we are being judgmental. Now, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can, but let me just unpack Jesus' teaching on this very issue in Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus addresses judgmentalism in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, you know the story, he says, remove the log from your own eye before you remove the speck from your brothers. But look specifically, or listen specifically, to what he says in chapter 7, verse 5 of Matthew. He says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what does he mean here? First, he's saying, you start with your own sin. So we examine our own hearts and we confess and repent of the sins in our own heart. 
And it is after that initial step, which, by the way, should be an incredibly humbling experience for us, that we then have the right to approach that brother or sister in Christ. But Jesus is not teaching in Matthew 7, 5 that you never talk to another brother or sister about their sin. That's not what it's teaching. The lesson from the Sermon on the Mount here is before you go to that brother or sister, make sure you have examined your own heart. Make sure that you don't have tons and tons of sin built up before you go try to persuade this other brother or sister in Christ that might have just this minor offense against the Lord. That is the teaching in Matthew chapter 7. So please don't read Matthew 7 to be saying that we should never approach another brother or sister in Christ when they are in sin. So, hypothetically, let's say I've had a really busy day and I haven't had the time that I would have normally allotted to sit, reflect, meditate, confess, and repent of my sin. And in the process of not being able to do that, I have uh, this urgent call from someone who tells me that they know of a brother or sister in our church who's literally on their way to cheat on their spouse. I'm not going to not go and talk to that brother or sister in Christ simply because I haven't had time in the day to confess and repent of my sin. So the principle that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7 is examine your own heart. But by all means, if you know of a brother or sister in Christ who is about to wreck their life over sin, regardless of whether or not you've had the time to clearly confess your sin, I would still encourage you to go and help that brother or sister avoid doing something that would wreck their life. Now here's the larger question for us in terms of what John is teaching in this passage. How do we get to the point where we feel comfortable calling out sin in other people's lives? And the answer is, that can only happen when you have deep relationships with other brothers and sisters within the church. You see, I have no problem receiving criticism from my mom and dad who are here today, my wife, my children, my brother-in-law, my sister, these people know me really, really well. And so when they approach me and say, hey, you need to check yourself on this or that, or you need to address that, I can receive that criticism with great, I might not like it, but I can receive it in humility. Because I know that they love me, and they want what's best for me. They know everything about me. They know the good and the bad. They know the ugliness of my heart. They know the ugliness of my sin. But if someone I only know casually, like a great-great-aunt or a great-great-uncle or some acquaintance approaches me, pointing out to me all of the sin in my life, even if it's true, it's not going to be received. Because I haven't invested deeply in that relationship. And it's the same way with us. 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is going to mean much more to hear from one of you about my sin if you are a brother or sister in Christ that I know really, really well. It doesn't mean that you can't approach me and point out my sin. But the deeper the relationships that we have with one another, the more likely it is that we're going to be comfortable enough and love that individual enough to speak truth into their life when they need to hear it. So what John is teaching here, as he is teaching these churches that are experiencing false teaching, the application is that we need, we must be in relationship with each other. We need to show up early. We don't need to rush out after we're done. We need to check in on our brothers and sisters that we know well throughout the week. Invite them into our home for a meal. Ask them how we can pray with them. Go get coffee with them during the week. Or in my instance, go get a bottled water with somebody as they drink coffee. Ask them how you can pray for them. Ask them what God taught them in their time with the Lord throughout the week. Ask them your favorite part of the sermon. Better yet, ask them your least favorite part of the sermon. See, I won't know about it, so just tell them. Ask them for the point in the sermon that you disagreed with the most. Whatever you have to do to begin having spiritual conversations. Whatever you have to do to invest in one another's lives so that we as a church, locally, First Baptist Dothan, can be ready to do what John is teaching in this passage. So number one, we have to know that sin affects the body and we need to hold one another accountable. And be praying for one another and call one another out so that we will be a healthier body. But number two, we also learn that God gives life. John says here that when a believer asks God, and by the way, asking here means prayer. He says God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now, this is a very, not controversial, but a very discussed passage of Scripture. What is John talking about in this passage when he says, sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death? So first, let's start with, what are the sins that do not lead to death? Any sin that has been atoned for, by the blood of Jesus Christ, is a sin that does not lead to death. 1 John 1.9, we studied it back in January. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, any sin that has been atoned for by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ is a sin that does not lead to death. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what it is. Any sin that has been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ is given forgiveness. There is no list of sins that are not forgiven 
by the blood of Jesus Christ. Culture may come up with a list of certain sins that they think there's no way that God can forgive, but I'm telling you, the truth of Scripture is any sin that has been atoned for by the blood of Jesus is a sin that God will forgive. So then, the question is, what does John mean then in this passage by sins that lead to death? There's been a lot of explanations about this. I'm going to give you some of the explanations, and then I'm going to tell you what I think this text is teaching. Some argue that John is talking about sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death as a, a reference to the Old Testament law where it talks about sins that are committed intentionally and sins that are committed unintentionally. You can read about those in the book of Leviticus. I don't think that makes sense within the context of 1 John, but some have argued that. Another way that oftentimes people think about this phrase, sins that lead to death, is to think about the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which Jesus talks about. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is defined as attributing the works of the Spirit to the work of Satan. And while that's certainly a sin that is unforgivable, and also, by the way, a sin that true believers cannot commit, so it's not one that you should be worrying about today, but I also don't think that fits within the context of this epistle. What I think John means by sins that lead to death, taking in the context of this letter, would be anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh and that his death was necessary for salvation. So in simpler terms, the sins that lead to death would be those sins where no forgiveness is granted because that person has not trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ to atone for those sins. Because to deny, as the false teachers in this letter were denying, to deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh is to deny the atonement and thus leave a person dead in their trespasses and sins. So the sins that lead to death, therefore, simply put, would be anyone who does not repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ alone. One commentator says this, To sin unto death is to have a heart unchanged by God's love in Christ, and so to persist in convictions and acts and commitments like those John and his readers know to exist among ostensibly Christian people of their acquaintance, some of whom have now left those whom John addresses. So within the context of this epistle, those that would have committed sins that lead to death would have been the false teachers who were denying that Jesus was God in the flesh and all of those who would have followed their false teaching. Everyone in the room needs to know this. Believer or unbeliever, God is in the business of giving life. Your past, present, and future sins 
are no match for the forgiveness of sin offered through the blood of Jesus. Paul illustrates this well in Ephesians chapter 1, 7 to 9. Here's what he says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So before the foundation of the world, God had a plan that he would send Jesus to atone for the sins of his people, which would unite all of those who repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ back to a holy God. So if you are a believer here today, a true, authentic, born-again, made regenerate by the Holy Spirit, believer in Jesus Christ. There is no sin that leads to death. Because you have been atoned for by the finished work of your Savior on the cross. So when you are prone to despair and discouragement over sin in your life, let me direct you to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brother, sister, I'm telling you, I've been there. When we have periods of frustration, when we feel like our sin just will not go away. And emotionally and even mentally, we are overwhelmed. And we're fearful that our sin will lead to death. You need in those moments to run to Romans 8.1. Run to the objective truth of God's word, which tells us that if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. I don't care how you feel about it. I care what God's word says about it. Cling to the truth of scripture in those moments. Now this doesn't mean that when you do sin, you will not feel conviction. That's a good feeling. Not good in the moment, but it's good for your soul. You want to feel conviction. So that you will run to Christ and beg for His forgiveness and mercy. Which, by the way, He always offers to His children. He delivers on that promise every single time. You have been robed, you have been clothed with the imputed righteousness of Christ. And because of that, you have life. Non-believers, however, if you today feel the weight and the burden of your sin, and you are wondering how you can relieve yourself of this overwhelming guilt that you feel. Let me tell you where you will not find relief. You will not find it in your spouse. You will not find it in your children or your grandchildren. You will not find it 
in an academic or an athletic achievement. You will not find it in money. You will not find it in sex. You will not find it in power or material possessions. Those avenues of obtaining freedom and peace might make you think you have arrived at peace, but they are simply illusions. Those idols cannot stop sin from consuming you in the same way that a rock cannot be stopped by a spider web. So, what do we make of the, the second part of verse 16? Because it's, it's a little tricky. Here's what John says. There is sin that leads to death. We already covered that, but here's the phrase. I do not say that one should pray for that. What is John teaching here? Is John saying that believers should not pray for those that have denied that Jesus came as the substitutionary atonement for sin? What about those who are not in Christ? Is John teaching that we don't pray for lost people? Again, you must stay close to the context in which John is writing. John is referring to false teachers who had distorted the truth of the gospel and were attempting to persuade authentic believers to come and join their side. So John's somewhat nuanced response here is leaving the decision up to the individual Christians as to whether or not they will continue to intercede for these false teachers that had allured Christians away from the true faith. This is not a commandment that John is giving us to not pray for lost people or to not pray for those who have rejected the substitutionary death of Christ. However, we must know that there is sin that leads to death and God will not spare his judgment on those who sin in that way. So, as we pray for these people... We still have to hold to the truth that God's will for a person who sins unto death will always be eternal judgment. That is not ever going to change. We would never want to pray in a way that would violate who God is and his nature and his attributes. So let me summarize it like this. Andy Nacelli says this. He's a New Testament commentator. Here's what he says. John doesn't forbid believers to pray for such sinners, but believers cannot pray for them with the same level of confidence as for believers who commit a sin not leading to death. So number three. Sin leads to death. John reinforces the seriousness and the importance of sin in all of humanity when he says, very simply, all wrongdoing is sin. We have to make the theological connection to our wrongdoing. It's not enough to simply say we've made a mistake or that we had a momentary lapse of judgment. That leaves our wrongdoing in the realm of the world. The theological connection that we have to make 
is that all wrongdoing is sin. So Paul clarifies this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Adam was born, Adam sinned, you were born, you come from Adam, therefore you have sinned, I have sinned, your precious grandbabies have sinned. You can laugh, that's a joke. But they have sinned. It doesn't matter if movies, TV, music, schools, parents, friends, or even pastors and churches normalize or celebrate sin. It still leads to death. Because the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, communicates this reality. But we're not going to end on a downer. Here's the hope of the gospel. Even though sin leads to death, there is sin that does not lead to death. And that reality is true for anyone in this room who acknowledges their sinfulness before a holy God and pleads for the blood of Jesus to wash them clean of their sin. This reality, brothers and sisters, and lost people in the room, is not only true for murderers, adulterers, kidnappers, and prisoners. It is for the one who struggles with the sins of the heart, like anger, pride, jealousy, and greed. All sin is wrongdoing, and since all have sinned and fallen short... All need Jesus to atone for their sins. And the pages of Scripture are full of people who fall short of God's holiness. Yet God redeems through the blood of His Son. If the man who was on the cross next to Christ in the final moments of his life can be forgiven of his heinous crimes and told, today you will be with me in paradise, then there is no sin that God cannot forgive. I close with a famous quote from Tim Keller, who's also represented on my socks today. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Because it is only through Jesus that our sin will not lead to death. 
so we as your church all of those in Christ represented here today we praise you for your faithfulness and we praise you for the forgiveness offered to us through Jesus and for any who are present today who are still living in their sin sin that will not only lead to their physical death but to their eternal death my prayer today is that they will reach out and accept the free offer of the gospel through believing in faith in the finished work of your son on the cross we thank you for the gospel it's in Christ's name we pray Amen.